If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. Will you join me in prayer? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It is written in Ecclesiastes, what do people gain from all the toil at which they toil under the sun? It's not exactly clear who they're talking to. You, Holy One, themselves, whoever happened to be in earshot at the time? Well, we are listening now, and we are feeling the sentiment now. Vanity, a catch-all for meaningless, futile, useless, pointless. That's a bit what it felt like last week as the arc of the moral universe did not immediately and unmistakably bend towards justice, inclusion, and love. We are tired, Holy One. We are tired because we really thought all the work, all the letter writing, all the phone banking, all the fact checking, all of the careful reasoning and laboring, well, it just did not produce the fruit we expected. Despair is licking its chops. But we also read just a few chapters later in Ecclesiastes that for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So we have done the planting. Now we must water and wait. Now we must keep watch. Now we must keep working. For, for who knows how close we are to a new season. Let us not lose heart and do the work before us, trusting that there will come a time for laughing and dancing, healing and embracing, because we know that for everything there is a season. May our work hurry it up. We pray in your holy name. Amen. The sermon, the scripture this morning, comes from the book of Amos, chapter 5, verses 18 through 24. Alas, for you who desire the day of the Lord, why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light, as if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear, or went into the house and rested a hand against the wall and was bitten by a snake. Is not the day of the Lord darkness, not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. 
Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of, your, of well-being of your fattened animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Here ends these words from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We know these words. They are familiar to us. Martin Luther King Jr., right, in his letter from Birmingham Jail? But though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, Dr. King wrote, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you? Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. And John Bunyan, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. And Abraham Lincoln, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And then Dr. King boldly asked, so the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremist we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? Perhaps the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. Oh, we do very much want to be extremists for justice. We are tired. This election season, which feels like it has lasted an entire decade, has been exhausting. And then, on election day last week, America declined the opportunity to clearly and emphatically reject white supremacy, violent nationalism, and gross indecency. The dog whistles were blown and America's shrinking white majority came running. This was, for many of us, the most difficult challenge of a week filled with difficult challenges, harder than recovering from a historic ice storm, worse than having to wait for the final result of the election, and more terrifying than our skyrocketing COVID numbers was the lack of a landslide. No overwhelming majority that said, be gone with you and never bring that kind of politics of division back to this country again. As Dove Seedman commented, 
there was no moral wave. There was no widespread rejection of the kind of leadership that divides us, especially in a pandemic. Given all of this, the reading from Amos seems so very timely. Many of us are indeed begging for justice and righteousness to roll down like waters, like an ever-flowing stream, and flush out to see the authoritarian strongman and his acolytes who prop him up. Amos knew a thing or two about this, for he lived in a time much like ours. For the 1%, it was the best of times. For those in poverty, it was the worst of times. Amos spoke to a people reveling in affluence, building summer homes and winter homes, while others had not one shingle under which to take refuge. These are people who had the audacity, as theologian James Lindbergh describes, to inscribe God with us on its weaponry, in God we trust on its coinage, and then began to claim God as its own private possession and to identify its own purposes with those of God. The setting for the book of Amos could easily be America in 2020. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream is one of the most powerful calls to action in all of Scripture, and we have never been in more need of it than we are today. But of course, you have heard that sermon before, haven't you? And I know that there are some folks who didn't tune in today because they could not bear to hear the phrase, Y'all, we have so much work to do. One more dang time. Because we have been marching, letter writing, door knocking, meal serving, phone banking, and generally giving it our all to turn the tide towards love. We have been working, but it feels like we are not enough and that it doesn't matter. But the story of Amos says something different. We are introduced to Amos in the first sentence by his vocation, the first sentence of the first chapter. And this is not unusual. People are frequently introduced this way in the Bible. Jesus was introduced as the carpenter in the Gospel of Mark. And in the book of Acts, we are introduced to Lydia as a woman in sales. You remember the woman who was a dealer in purple cloth. Perhaps... Perhaps you are thinking that Amos is introduced to us as a prophet with pomp and circumstance in the way other prophets are introduced with notations about their experience and lineage, like the prophet Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Ananoth in the land of Benjamin, or the prophet Ezekiel, priest and son of Buzi. As it turns out, Amos is not the son of a priest, nor does he inherit ministry as the family business. You know the type, the, the son who goes into ministry because that's what the men in the family do and there's a brand to keep up. Despite this, Amos still makes it into scripture. Although he is considered part of the collection referred to as the minor prophets in contrast to the major prophets, even though scholars make the argument that he is one of the earliest prophets in Scripture. 
But Amos isn't introduced as a prophet. He is, as the text says, among the shepherds of Tekoa, a shepherd, an agriculturalist, a field hand. In chapter 7, Amos himself makes it clear that he is a layman who was tending his flock when God interrupted and said, tend the people instead. Isn't that something? This prophet quoted by the greatest civil rights leader of our time was not a prophet at all, but a farmer and a rancher. It, it seems God is happy to use whoever is willing, an accountant, a dog walker, a teacher, a letter carrier, a parent, a lawyer, a secretary, mid-level management, a custodian, that's fine, a bank teller, great, a writer, a pharmacist, a mechanic, perfect. God is willing to use us all to issue the call to righteousness and to organize for justice. This is not surprising, of course, because each of us are positioned, just as Amos, to recognize injustice, to see what needs to be made right. Amos, the farmer from a small rural town, had seen a wagon straining under a heavy load from the field in chapter 2 and had watched the well-fed cattle grazing on the hills. Amos knew something of warfare. The sound of the alarm talked about in chapter 3 or the sight of fires set by invading armies in chapter 1. And he knew the stench of death rising from the camp in chapter 4. Amos had observed the lifestyle of the rich with their expensive homes in chapter 3 and luxurious tastes in chapter 4 and 6. In the places of worship, he had heard both the hymns of praise and the cries of lament. He was acquainted with grief. His ear had caught what went on behind the counters in the shops of the merchants, and his eye had seen what happened to the poor in the courts. So, too... The teacher knows that students come to school hungry. The manager knows minimum wage is not enough for a single parent cashier. And the dog walker knows about the state of the economy because side gigs are part of how they pay their bills. What should be obvious from this story is that our very ordinariness matters our position in life, our, our relationship, our contexts matter and make us prophets in waiting. Each of us must be ready to do our part, do what we can with what we have if we are going to repair and rebuild the only world we know. What is broken is fundamentally communal and institutional, scholar Yuval Levin writes so that a recovery of the ethos required for our national politics to function is likely to happen closer to the interpersonal level. It can begin with a simple question asked in little moments of decision. Given my role here, what should I be doing as a parent or a neighbor, a pastor or a congregant, an employer or an employee, a teacher, or a student, a legislator, or a citizen, how should I act in this situation? A failure to ask that question, and so to accept the obligations that come with whatever positions and privileges we have in our lives, 
is behind the most significant problems we face. It is at the heart of the way we Americans have failed one another by failing to ask what the roles we each have in particular institutions, familial, communal, religious, educational, professional, civic, and political, and what they demand of us in key moments. This is a key moment, church, for us to prophesy our catch-all word for teaching or speaking under inspiration, warning or correcting in the name of the common good. Amos did this from a place of believing that indeed a small town farmer had something to say, had something to do, instead of just accepting the status quo, assuming things would never change, content to keep his head down. Here's the part I hope we will take the most comfort in. It is altogether unclear that Amos knew or saw that his prophecy, his one-on-one -on -one conversations, his work and ministry, instantaneously bent the moral arc of the universe or much less changed the immediate trajectory of his community. It is altogether unclear that he knew that. And perhaps you are wondering why we could take comfort in that fact that, like us, Amos couldn't be sure that what he did mattered. I mean, to take comfort is to be reassured, soothed, uplifted, encouraged. So this can't possibly be that. But the book of Amos ends with these words. The time is surely coming, says the Lord, when the one who plows shall overtake the one who reaps and the treader of grapes, the one who sows the seed. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them upon their land and they shall never again be plucked up out of the land that I have given them. Amos just wouldn't lose hope. Though there wasn't a tidal wave of change, Amos held fast. He trusted that it did indeed matter, even if he didn't witness it. You are probably also familiar with the wisdom of Jewish sages who carried on this tradition in the saying, it is not your responsibility to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. So plant the bulbs that won't flower until spring. Cut back branches and trust the resiliency of nature. Find the next local race. School board and city council elections are just around the corner here in Oklahoma City. And invest your time and dollars in progressive candidates. Don't write off any family member because white folk are responsible for other white folk, even if it takes 20 years of shutting down xenophobia at your dinner table. Move what you can of your money and your church's money to black-owned banks and businesses because this is a concrete act of anti-racism. Keep organizing even in a right-to-work state. Keep phone banking and canvassing, even in a straight-party voting state. 
keep insisting on peace and nonviolence, even in a permitless carry state. Keep proclaiming that faith is not measured by the purity of our beliefs, but by how well we do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly, even in a deeply fundamentalist evangelical state. Keep doing the work because we know that if justice is to ever roll down like mighty waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, it's because we turned on the tap. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.